Good morning, Paseo. Uh, my name is Jared Price. I have the pleasure of opening up the Word of God with you this morning. Uh, but before we jump into our text, I just want to take a moment and pray and ask that God would be our, with our time of worship. So let's pray. God, I thank you for the ability, the privilege to read your word, to soak myself in it, to be convicted by it this week as we're jumping again into the book of Romans. God, I pray for everybody as they're home watching this or wherever they are. Lord, I pray that they would feel the comfort of your presence. They'd feel the joy of your truth. And God, that we would experience this morning the hope that comes from your trusting word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me focus and proclaim your truth, separate any other part of me that's going to say anything that you don't want to be said, and let me proclaim your truth as you have written it. In your name we pray, God. Amen. This weekend, we celebrate Memorial Day. It's a time in which we honor those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our country. It is estimated that ever since the signing of the Declaration of Independence, 1.4 million Americans have given their lives in defense of this country. In World War II alone, 416,000 men died. Now, unfortunately for me, and maybe you experience this as well, statistics sometimes, they don't cause any emotion. It's because we live in this over-mediated world in which it just kind of bounces off of us. And so I, the way in which I best honor those who have gone before us is to remember their individual stories. So on the 25th, we celebrate Memorial Day. But on the 27th of May marks the 77-year anniversary of a few men who gave that ultimate sacrifice and others who went on to experience ultimate suffering. On May 27, 1943, the engines died on the Green Hornet. It was a beat-up B-24 bomber. And they were searching, they were doing a down uh, airplane search south of Hawaii for um, some maybe wash, uh, crash pilots. But when their engines failed, the plane crashed into the sea, killing eight instantly and leaving three service members adrift. Russell Phillips, Francis McNamara, and Louis Zamperini. You might be familiar with this story as it's recorded in the Hollywood film Unbroken. After 47 days of severe sunburn, hunger, dehydration, fighting off sharks, being shot at by Japanese airplanes, they drifted over 2,000 miles and only Louis, only Louis and Russell were taken captive, interrogated by the Japanese. Francis had died on day 33 while being lost at sea. Unbroken follows the rest of the story of Louis as he undergoes two years of torture as a prisoner of war. And in, we see this amazing exchange with him and his nemesis, the bird. Matashiro Watanabe. I probably butchered that pronunciation. But the, the atrocity that he experienced very few of us can probably even imagine. At one point, the bird made him hold this log over his head, and it's the cover for the movie, where he has to hold it there, and he tells him that if he drops it, he will kill him. And history 
tells us, Louis tells us after he has survived the event, these events that he held it for 36 minutes until eventually the bird was overcome with hatred that he began to just beat Louis. How, how does someone sustain such suffering? So, see, suffering sometimes hits in moments when we just least expect it, and we know this most of all right now. The engines fail, and before you know it, you find yourself trying to keep your head above water. Where do we find our hope in times of crisis? This has been our, our subject through these entire sermon series, The God of Hope. Pastor Shelton started us a few weeks ago with Romans 15, 13, and today we're going to end in the verse 4 of chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Romans chapter 15, verse 4 which says this for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. This is the big idea up front that scripture sustains and supplies our hope, enabling us to sacrifice self. Scripture supplies and sustains our hope in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this in Romans chapter 15. But like any good Bible study, we have to start where? In the context, right? Context is king. And the context surrounding chapter four verse or chapter 15 verse four takes us all the way back. No, not to the beginning of Romans. Don't worry. We're going to Romans 14. If you look back at Romans 14 verse one, it says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. See, Paul is addressing something specific in the church. He's saying that the internal conflict within the church, certain matters of opinion can be cured by self-sacrifice. And you might be asking, well, how do I know that? Well, he addresses this first in Romans 14, 1, and then we see it continued in 15, 1. And he says here in uh, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. See, the Roman Christians had some disagreements about conflict, about matters of opinion. They disagreed mainly about clean and unclean food, holy days and ritualistic days and whether they should be observed or celebrated and the consumption of alcohol, something that we still have today. And we think about our modern context, we, it'd be like us debating any kind of issues of opinions, singing Christmas songs in church, uh, the particular political affiliations that we might be wanting to project right now, the uh, thoughts we might have about end times or what we think about Gaslamp District down in downtown San Diego. People have opinions, and Paul is trying to say that there are few opinions that are worth destroying the work of God and the unity of the church. And this brings us into Romans 5, where he says that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. And strong and weak here can immediately seem like, oh, this is like Paul throwing judgment on somebody as strong and all oh, these people are just the weak. Really what Paul is talking about is using those two categories to refer to those people's type of faith. See, the strong were those 
who believed in their freedom in Christ had now enabled them to maybe not follow all of the regulations and rituals written in the Old Testament. Whereas the faith of the weak, while they believed in Jesus Christ as their savior, while they submitted to him as Lord, they still held to the practices in the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying here is the solution to this internal Christian conflict is surrender of self. See what they were doing. I'm going to go back real quick to Romans 14.1. He tells them, welcome them into the church but not to quarrel over opinions. Apparently the Roman Christians who were predominantly the strong, which would have been most likely a Gentile audience because they wouldn't have had a presupposition to Jewish rituals and customs. Apparently they were welcoming in more susceptible Jewish believers simply for the sake of arguments to exchange diverse opinions and beliefs. And what Paul says is no, you You welcome them in, not just to please yourself and your own opinions and try to persuade them on what you think is right. You welcome them in to build them up. Look at verse two. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. The cure to internal conflict of mere opinions and disagreements, sacrificing self. But it's hard to do this, right? Especially in a, in a world in which we live with so much fear currently, where all of our projections are going internal. I mean, we've been in our homes for 45 plus days. Everything is saturated internal. How do you sacrifice self? It's difficult. And it was just as difficult back then for these Greek or Gentile or Roman esque strong believers in the faith to sacrifice the things that they had grown up with their natural inclinations. And Paul knows that. And that's why in verse three, he gives us a great motivation. Our motivation for sacrificing self is our hope. And our hope is Jesus Christ for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus accepted us while we were still weak, still helpless, and we too should be doing the same for others. Douglas knew on his comments that Paul may be trying to get the strong to put their own suffering into a certain perspective, occasionally abstaining from meat or wine or observing special religious days should not seem like much of a burden in comparison with what Christ had to suffer for our sake. Paul says to the strong, if you're having a hard time putting aside your, your non-essential issues to welcome these people into the body, just remember Jesus. And, and think about this too. He's addressing the strong, particularly who are most likely predominantly a Gentile audience. In the book of Ephesians, Paul writes in two, two, chapter 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, speaking to Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. He's speaking to these now strong in the faith who are tempted to look down upon their Jewish leaning brothers. And he says, you didn't have any hope before Christ. 
You had nothing before Jesus saved you. In fact, in verse eight of chapter two in Ephesians, he says, for the, by the grace of God, you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. See, in Jesus Christ, we have our all-sustaining, all-powerful, overpassing opinion hope. Jesus has saved us by his life, death, and resurrection. He has taken our sin upon himself on the cross and extended to us his righteousness so that one day we might live with him for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's no more condemnation for sin, no more fear in death, and no more power that this world has over us. That is what Paul is reminding these Romans, these strong in the faith. He's like, look, the unity of the church is dependent upon your hope in Jesus Christ who separates us from these non-essential issues. Hope enables us to surrender self for the glory and the praise and the honor of God. But if we're not careful, we might miss something really incredible that's happening in this text. Paul is reminding them of their great hope, but something very specific is happening for these strong believers based upon how they were raised in their culture context. Look at verse three again. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Wouldn't you think Paul instead would talk about how Jesus came not to, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many? Wouldn't you think that Jesus would talk, but Paul would talk about Jesus giving himself on the passion, on the cross for our sins, but instead he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 69, which historically New Testament writers refer to using, use, to refer to the passion, the passion week. And why does he do this? Even more so fascinating is in verse four, he then starts talking about the importance of the Old Testament. For whatever was written in the former days, that's, that's all of the other side of the Bible, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, Paul realizes both and the sovereignty and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, something about his audience then and something about in our hearts now, that we're prone to forget our hope. We're so quick to forget our hope, like the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Paul recognizes we are sinful, fickle, human beings, and that we, we have a tendency that when life throws us a curveball, we don't go back to where we should. We go back to what we were taught. We go back to what we've been instructed in in life. See, sometimes life throws us a curveball like COVID-19. I can't tell you how many social media posts I've read that go something like this. Uh, I had plans, then COVID-19. I saw somebody uh, post the quotation, Mike Tyson, that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. How do you respond when life punches you in the face? 
How do you respond in crisis? See, I believe what Paul is addressing here, though somewhat minor, he's starting to shift his focus to talking about all crisis, all suffering. How you respond in these moments reveals your hope. Pastor Shelton talked about this when he preached on Romans 15, verse 13. And I want to bring it up here as we conclude this sermon series. See, when something hits you out of nowhere, you respond with what you know and how you were taught. If you don't believe me, just have a couple of kids. All of a sudden, you are doing things that you know your parents did that you hated. And you have no idea why you're doing it, except for the fact that you have no idea how to handle the situation that's before you. So what do you do? You react. You react according to how you were instructed, how you've been taught. You react uh, part of whatever was shown to you in life. When life throws you a curveball, you respond with how you were instructed. As a quote goes, we become what we behold. So in verse four, Paul underneath this, and we really have to jump into the text to see this. Paul is addressing something about the sufficiency of scripture and the need that we must root ourselves in scripture. And he's comparing this with the battle between the power of scripture and the power of self. This is really my second point is that the the power of scripture and the power of self, they're always waging war with one another. See, scripture instructs us to, to receive our sustaining hope in Jesus Christ and scripture roots us in him. Look again at verse four. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. The problem is everything in this world is telling you to trust in your own power rather than the power of God's word. Everything is instructing you to trust in yourself, not in the power of God. I wonder if you're honest with yourself. If you'd analyze how you respond, be it a little minor differing of opinion or a major issue of suffering, do you tend to respond out of trust in the power of God's word or trust in your own abilities to fix that problem? Culture continually instructs us to respond to conflict and suffering with power of self. And Dr. Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life that has sold now over 4 million copies. We see that the first rule that he suggests in responding to a world that is baked with suffering is to stand up straight with your shoulders back. Power of self. By bearing your suffering, you learn how to become a better person. Power of self. I think back to Zamperini uh, Zamperini Louis, or Louis Zamperini, excuse me, who was a boy of mischief and an Olympic endurance athlete who was beat continually as a child, spent nights out on his own, hopped from city to city, slept in cars. The kid learned to endure hard things, to keep pushing no matter what, to run faster than he thought possible. And he learned to trust in a power of self. Paul's audience, the strong, while understanding theologically freedom in Christ, 
is coming from a culture that was ingrained with power of self. I know this might be difficult to see in this text, but really we see this highlighted in these two words that Paul chooses to use in verse four, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. These two words Paul uses before, and he used them extremely purposefully because these words had significant, significant meaning to Paul's listeners. It would have been like if I would say the word resiliency. When I say the word resiliency, you will automatically come up with things. I mean, we have resilience conference. We have all these self-help books about how you can deal with the problems of your life. That's like what's happening when Paul says the word endurance. See, in antiquity, both Greeks and Romans forged their endurance from very, very young ages. For the Greeks, probably the most famous of this was the Spartans who had this military school called the Agoge, which meant the manner of life. This practice took kids at the age of seven and put them into the most intense military training to teach them endurance so that they might become the very walls of Sparta. Right after 45 days of quarantine, I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there who are like, sign my kid up for that summer camp. I'm ready for them to go. How long is it? Like 20 years? Perfect. Send them off. No, and Greek, Greek thought was obsessed with this idea of self-endurance. Aristotle, one of the, one of the biggest effectors, uh, you might say, onto Hellenistic culture states that the brave man must summon, summon from within himself the power of resistance. He must, now get this, this is awesome. He must not stand firm just for fear of rejection, nor endure suffering for the sake of hope. Did you hear that? In that culture to, to endure suffering because of hope would have been unvirtuous. The brave man, he says, must stand fast for the love of honor. He must endure hard things. He must find power to face suffering in himself. But not only just endurance, but also encouragement. With regards to encouragement, those experiencing suffering were told to encourage or console themselves. While I was not unworthy to seek help from another, it was thought to be a moral obligation to accept, to attempt to encourage oneself first. For only he who can console himself can be an example to others to give them real comfort. You see, you see what Paul is addressing so subtly, but so specifically in verse four. He starts off by talking about very, very minuscule things of differing of opinions and how we need to be unified in our hope in Jesus Christ to now talking about any time you engage in anything that is causing suffering, pain, hardship, don't run to yourself. You run to your hope and your hope is Jesus Christ. Ask yourself this in moments of crisis, be it a fleeting disagreement or the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, isolation in your home? Do you fall back to seeking the encouragement found in the scriptures? Or do you 
try to look internally to find that hope in yourself. Because how you respond to those moments is revealing where your hope is. And the pull to self is so, it's so big. It's so captivating. It's so hard. That's why Paul says over and over again, he says it three times not to please yourself, not to go back into yourself and think of yourself. Paul's exhorting those who are strong to battle the pull to the power of self. And the way that you battle it is by saturating yourself in the instruction of the scriptures. Looking at the story of Louis this week has really baffled me wildly because the power of self, it's so strong and it pulls you in so fast. And I think in some ways it's a lot like a fire. When you put fuel into a fire, when you put wood into a fire, it burns and it gives off heat and it's passionate, it's energy. It supplies something very functional in that moment. But as soon as the fuel is gone, it leaves nothing but ashes. And, and Louis, in the midst of his tribulations in two years as a POW in the camp and experiencing terrible suffering, he has this fuel in him of power of self, this endurance that he's developed. But what happens after the war? Something Hollywood doesn't want you to know, something that the movie doesn't show you. In 1945, after he was liberated, Louis spiraled further and further into his torment. He said in one interview, that he began to have a drink before speeches that people wanted to make to ease his nerves. But every night he was tormented by the memories of the bird, memories of camp, memories of the ones that he loved who had perished. And so he would have another drink and another and another. And he became gradually an alcoholic to the point where his only hope was finding the bottom of a bottle. And even then that wasn't enough. So what did he do? He went back to what he knew. He tried to go back into his own internal being and muster that courage. And he started training again for the Olympics. Even after sustaining severe injuries as a POW, he started training his body again and again. And he ran and he set the, the record for the West Coast in 1946, I believe it was. And as he crossed the finish line, he fell and crumbled, never to heal again, his body finally broke and it left him in absolute despair. Power of self became ashes. In one fit nightmare, he woke up thinking he was strangling the bird in his dream because the only thing that was bringing him satisfaction was to try to bring justice to his misery by killing the bird. And so he thought he was strangling the bird, but he woke up to his horror it was his wife. He had hit the epitome of where power of self leaves you, which is ultimately insufficient. Power of self will always leave you insufficient. It may work for a moment. It may work for a month. It may work for a year. It may work for a decade. But eventually it's going to leave you with ashes for hope. Ravi Zacharias, the great apologist, recently just passed away. And one of his most famous quotes, and one that I love, is he says, we have the right to believe whatever we want, but not everything we believe is right. 
Are you believing? Are you trusting in a hope that is right? Are you believing and is your hope founded in the instruction of scripture? Because if it isn't, you're going to return to what you've been taught. See, scripture supplies and sustains our hope. The power of scripture keeps us centered on our hope in Jesus, which enables us to surrender ourselves. Look again, verse four. I think this is why Paul quotes the Old Testament as he wants these Gentile predominantly strong believers in the faith to sympathize and realize the beauty of what their weak faith brothers who are coming into the church, the Jewish believers have in the old Testament that without the old Testament, there's no hope in Jesus Christ for in that word, in this written word is our hope. And it was promised beforehand. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Paul is warning the strong, don't slip into your formal instruction. Don't fall back into wanting to please yourself. Don't get caught up into non-essential opinions or arguments that separate the unity of the church. Instead, root yourself in the instruction of the scriptures that reminds you of your hope in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I need the word of God daily. I need the word of God to instruct me more than culture is instructing me. And I don't need it just for me. I need it for those I interact with daily. Those who have different opinions from me. I need it for my children. Consider Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. And God instructed Israel. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is Old Testament. And this is so good. Look at this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The word of God is so to so saturate your life. It's to be like glasses that you never take off so that anything you see or experience, you respond bond with the hope of the instruction of the word that is found in Jesus Christ. That's your hope. That's how you sustain your hope is by being rooted in the scriptures. Timothy, second Timothy three, 16 through 17 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Everything you need to sustain your hope in Jesus Christ and to navigate God's plan in your life is right before you. Even in the midst of this fear, even in the midst of this panic, even in the midst of this wildness that we're experiencing now, everything you need is right here before you. And now I'm going to pry into your life a little bit. Because Jesus has pried into mine this whole week studying this passage, and it's only fair that I pry into yours. 
Before COVID-19, did you ever say something like, I wish I had more time with my family? Or maybe, I wish I had more time to read, to study God's word, to just go and pray and to saturate myself into God's word. Did you ever say something like that? I know I did. But if I compare your screen time to your time in the word during these past 45, 50 days, whatever we're at now, what would we find? Are you saturating yourself with the instruction of the word or are you saturating yourself with the influence of culture? Are you reading the news more than you're reading God's word? Are you running to your hope and what the next stimulus check might provide or what the next research might show us? Or are you running to your hope in Jesus Christ? Because be it a minor disagreement with a church member or the most painful suffering that life could throw at you, the greatest thing that will supply you your endurance and your encouragement is your savior, Jesus Christ. You become what you behold. And when you behold the scriptures and you root yourself in the scriptures, you will find your hope in Jesus Christ. See the instruction of the word as we read it. And as we study it, it takes what we desire. It takes what we fear. It takes our hurts, our pains, the uncertainties that we have in this life. And it satisfies all of that in Jesus. Look with me at a few examples. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you want justice. Maybe you've been craving to get even like Louis was. Where all he wanted was to just fight the bird. And you have a bird in your life that you just, you want vengeance. You want justice. Jesus gives you justice. And it's even found in the Old Testament in Isaiah 30, 18. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show you mercy for the Lord is a God of what justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. You have your justice either in the death of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that person's sins or in the final judgment that is coming when he comes back. You have your justice in Jesus. Are you, are you desperate for forgiveness of sins? Have you been waiting to return to God? Maybe you've been, for whatever reason, putting off, and now this, all this uncertainty of life has caused an overwhelming sense in your heart of your sinfulness, and you're waiting for the forgiveness of sins. Let me tell you, it's found in Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, if I confess, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our, of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And maybe, maybe for you right now, something that you maybe have never thought about is a fear of death with almost 100,000 in the U.S. who have died from this illness. Maybe you are having a very genuine, real fear of death. Let me supply you with the hope of, that is found in Jesus Christ. That Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Oh, death, 
Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. Because in Jesus Christ, there is no more death. He's conquered Satan's sin and death. And now our hope, our hope is found in him. And we need not fear death. We need not fear suffering either. Do you want comfort in suffering? Then you can run to the promises that have been and are going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, Psalm 119.50. If you've never read it, you should read it. Read it today. It's going to take you a while because it's about 176 verses. But in Psalm 119.50, it says, This is my comfort in affliction, that your promises give me life. Is your hope rooted and the promises fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and that what will come, what is still to come, the glory of what is to come, that he's coming back to redeem us, to bring us to life with him, is your hope rooted in that? Because in that you will find an encouragement, you will find an endurance that can sustain anything. I just want to conclude by encouraging you with the story of Louis, Louis Zamperini because his story doesn't end with ashes for hope. It ends with the word of God. Louis at the bottom of despair after his wife had filed for divorce, he thought it was pretty much over for him, but then something happened his wife became a Christian and she told him because she believes in Jesus Christ, she's no longer going to divorce him. And she wants him to come with him to this rally to hear some preacher. And he comes into this tent meeting and he says in his mind, I watched an interview with him where he's describing this. And he's like, he goes, he goes, I'm a good person. He goes, look at how much I did in the war. Look at all the things that I've done in my life. He goes, I was a good person. I didn't need this repentance and hope in Jesus. He goes, what I needed was justice. But he came into the tent that night, and this is what he heard. Here tonight, there's a drowning man, a drowning woman that is lost in the sea of life. And he said he immediately was taken back to his 47 days, tossing, waiting in the sea for help. He was reminded of all the times that he cried out to God, that if God would just save him, if God would just save him, that he would worship him forever. And for some reason, as soon as he was liberated, he forgot all about those promises. He was reminded of God's faithfulness to him through the years of captivity and then that preacher began to read a text, and I'm going to read it for you. That preacher began to read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Billy Graham went on and continued to say this. If you suffer, 
God says, I will give you the grace to go forward. In that moment, Louis says he wanted to run. He wanted to run out of the tent. He wanted to leave at that moment, but something captivated his heart, his soul, and he knew that the word of God was true. And so instead of running out, he ran toward God and to his word, and he saturated it with himself ever since. That night he went out, he went to his home and he dumped all of his alcohol down the drain. He threw out all of his packs of cigarettes, which we could talk about that another time. He, he went in and he resolved to change his life because something had happened. He found a hope. He, re, he repented of his sins. He confessed them before the cross of Jesus Christ and he found peace. He said that night, was the first night in five years that he did not have a dream, a memory of torment. And he said in a single moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and his helplessness had fallen away. And he said the next morning he believed that he was a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is the power of the scriptures over the power of self. Power of self will always fail, but the scriptures will continually root us in the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. The scriptures will sustain our hope in Jesus. In 1950, Louis decided to go back to Japan. See, Louis didn't just embrace the sovereignty of God in that moment and trust in Jesus' salvation in that moment and then just go on to live his life. He saturated himself with the word and began to be instructed by it. And he saw from the word of God that he needed to go and to forgive those who had wronged him. So he traveled to Japan and he visited his former captors, 850 of them in Sugamo prison in Tokyo. And he came before them and he looked them in the eyes and he said, I forgive you as Jesus has forgiven me. And then those who were watching this take place said something wild happened. Louis just started smiling like a little kid and he just ran out and started shaking their hands saying, I forgive you. And he gave them a hug and he ran over to the next person. He said, I forgive you and shook their hands. The power and the hope of Jesus Christ truly doesn't even make sense. It sustains us in the worst of sufferings and it empowers us and gives us the ability to push past what we thought is possible. One member wasn't there that day, the bird. And then Louis was told that the bird had died and he resolved at that moment to forgive him. And he was sad that he couldn't do it face to face. And if you know the story, you know that something wild happened 40 years later. To the shock of the world and mostly to Louis, they found out that the bird had faked his own death and was indeed alive. Louis, now in his 80s, wrote him a letter. And what did he want? What did he write in his letter? He said, I want to meet you. I want to come meet you face to face so that I can tell you something. And this is what he wrote at the end. Like the others referencing Sugumo prison, he said, I also forgave you and now would hope that you also would become a Christian. 
My prayer is that you would be filled with the hope that is found and the love of Jesus Christ that will sustain you through any trial you face in life, that will give you hope, that will give you endurance, that might, might not make sense in the moment, but will last for all of eternity, that you would surrender yourself by saturating yourself in the truth of scripture. So you can proclaim the glory of God with the church in unity and in harmony. And I'll just end by ending how Paul ends this section. Romans 5, Romans 15, verse 5, he says, So may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. My prayer is that you would put off self, root yourself in the scripture so that it might sustain your hope in Jesus Christ. This is my prayer for you and I pray that you'd be blessed. Amen.